Meditations podcast where it's Chris Heidel and Neil Modi's job to be better citizens and learn more about being human um, so that we can be better investors. Uh, today, joining us on this podcast is uh, my partner at Zoic Capital, Eric Ten, to take us through the diagnostics market and uh, more specifically, why aren't we all getting tests for COVID-19? Um, you know, we live in one of the richest countries in the world and you know this COVID-19 test is not showing up at my door and I don't completely understand it. Is, is that a good intro Chris? Yeah I think it's fine that uh, you also have to be wary of false tests out there like Predictive Technology Group and others who are foisting uh, <laughs> false testing on us so you have to be able to distinguish what's working and what's not working. The wheat from the chaff. Um, there are a lot of companies out there trying to push forth um, inaccurate tests or tests that have not really been proven. So it would be great to understand the diagnostics market and think about things that are actually working, that are being borne out. So <laughs> where should we start, Eric? I mean, like, take, take, us, take us through this. Like, you know, we, we've been confused and talking about it. And I guess not confused. We don't have all of the information. It's not so readily available. I mean, Chris, tell me, you, you're reading a fair amount every day too. Um, tell me if you're seeing differently. Is is the test readily available for for folks in Pasadena? Well, I think that the hunger seems to really be for the serology test to see who has the antibodies, which um, logically makes sense, logistically makes sense, um, and there seems to be a tremendous uh, hunger and demand for that. But still, again, nothing uh, yet proven to work, uh, or anything yet that can be scaled. Eric, what do you see? Yeah, so, so a little bit of of my background. I'm more on the more on the science side, less so on on the business side. So, um, I will. I mean, we can probably talk about those because those are probably just as valid. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, my own background is in molecular biology, uh, DNA diagnostics specifically, and um, spent over ten years after that uh, in the medical device industry. So, what I was thinking of doing is walking through the path, kind of like a, the journey of a patient sample, mm -hmm. um, kind of like Ricky Raindrop, but not for a raindrop, but for a, a patient sample. <laughs> and, a and walk, swab, yes, I think, I, I don't know if that's a California only reference, but anyways, um, let's make the, uh, let's make the patient's name Santiago since we're all invested in his happiness. Uh, yes, sure. yes, absolutely. So what I was thinking is taking a, walkthrough of the journey of a sample from Santiago um, all the way through uh, each step that it would take now, and then highlighting what the bottlenecks are uh, at each step, if, if that sounds good. Sure. That sounds fantastic. Great. So, okay. So COVID-19 testing. So COVID-19, of course, is the name of the condition when infected by the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Um, COVID-19 is sometimes used interchangeably with the name of the virus, uh, but it's specifically with the disease. So what we're trying to detect is the virus. And Chris has already raised a very important point. There are two main types of tests at the moment. One is the antibody test that Chris mentioned, and the other is the nucleic acid test. And nucleic acids being DNA or RNA. So the nucleic acid test will tell a person if they have the virus right now uh, because it detects for the active presence of the RNA that is unique to SARS-CoV-2. Mm -hmm. um, the, the nucleic acid tests uh, take a little bit longer. Uh, they're a little bit more complex. Um, and, then we'll, and, and then we'll get into the uh, issues at the moment. And the antibody test, as Chris has already mentioned, will tell you if you have had the virus uh, before, and you might correlate that. Uh, but what I'll do is I'll take you through the nucleic acid test first. 
and then well, I'm, I'll go I'm, through the antibody one. I'm curious. Um, you said that there are only two tests now. Do, do you expect there to be more expanded tests, you know, over the next 24 months for COVID-19 that we haven't thought to talk about? Because you and I have had a lot of conversation. About do you mean anyway. more than two types of tests or two tests, period? Two, two types of tests. So we're talking about, obviously, antibodies, and we're talking about, you know, presence of, of whether you have it right now, what, in diagnostic, you know, which, is there going to be a third kind of category for tests for this? No. Okay. Yeah, that, that's the only two kinds. Mm -hmm. Got it. Yeah. Um, because a virus is so small, um, that's really the only way to, to detect it. Um, and, and, and purely speaking, the nucleic acid test is really the only way to tell if there is active virus in your system. Mm -hmm. Antibody is only the uh, past memory, so to speak, uh, or not past memory, active memory of, of the mm -hmm. person. So um, now to your question, actually, Neil, so to answer that, yes, so there only will be two categories of tests. Now, initially, when COVID-19 when, when COVID virus first appeared, it's a new pathogen, of course. So there, is no, there was no test even that existed that could detect it. Mm. There are nucleic so I'm first starting with nucleic acids. There are tests, of course, that can detect any sort of DNA in your body, whether it's from a virus, whether it's because it's a marker for a disease. These are detection systems that we'll get to in a little bit that have made billion-dollar companies, right? Companies that um, you, Neil, and I, uh, and of course, Neil and Chris and I talk about many times, like Roche, Abbott, um, and the others. But those are for tests that are designed for existing pathogens. So when the virus appeared, the first priority was to sequence the genetic uh, material of the virus. And that's what China did and publicized that in a rather short order. Uh, their response has been um, faster than it was with SARS, where some, when some of the information was not as forthcoming. Of course, our, inf our ability to sequence DNA, in other words, find the exact code for the uh, RNA specifically when, the, when it's in a virus, is obviously much more advanced now. Okay, so that sequence is, was publicized. It was made available. Now companies like Roche, like Abbott, even startup companies, um, some of which are in the Zoic portfolio, can start to develop a test for it. But that mm -hmm. takes time because one needs to develop uh, matching DNA uh, to that RNA and then test it to see if it doesn't produce false positives or false negatives. Mm -hmm. And I'll, I'll get to the, the patient journey in a little bit, but this is a bit of background. What happened was the WHO developed a set of what are called DNA primers. You can think of it as your tags that can find and, um, and match to and only to the viral RNA. And that was publicized for use for everybody. Um, mm -hmm. For a variety of reasons, the United States decided to do its own. And the do first set of primers... Sorry, do its own primer? Correct. Um, and the CDC's own first set of primers were um, not as effective as they should be, not Wait, as accurate. Can we step and back so, a second? Why did the United States decide to do its own primer? Yes. I, I, um, it's a combination... <laughs> I, it's probably a combination of politics... Um, as well as the desire to um, develop its own tests, um, the CDC acts in its in its own way, and it has been and that has shown to to work before, honestly, for other infectious diseases. Whereas this time, it may not have been as effective. Now, this is 2020, of course. So there's a not invented here syndrome, even at the CDC. Possibly, although again, I don't know the details. I can only speak to the science. I don't know about the politics. I will venture a bit into the politics to, uh, to say, and you can, you can tell me uh, not to mention this or not. No, no. I, I think can share be, everything you've been thinking about. You've been we can be pretty certain out. that the, the federal response of the United States has been, has been lacking. Uh, the lack of belief that this is an issue. Um, we're seeing you know, evidence now, for example, that 
even basic items such as masks and more advanced items such as ventilators were not um, ordered until March, um, well into wow. mid-March, which is when the outbreak was happening. And this affects the testing as well. Um, and the reason it affects the testing is it can affect how the CDC chooses, of course, like, like we just talk, discussed, chooses to design and use tests. And it also affects how the federal government can, with acts like the Defense Production Act, um, order companies like testing companies, not just ventilator companies, to produce tests regardless of the cost. And part of it also is, um, so now I'm going to step in, th this is actually a nice transition into the patient journey. So let's say uh, somebody like Santiago or somebody else wants to get tested. Well, first, they need to find out, wait, where do I go? Wait, wait, ba back up a second. Um, I I'm still a little confused about uh, the fact that the United States didn't really start ordering things until March. Is there an early alert warning system for, you know, the spread of a pandemic in the 21st century, other than, you know, us observing what's happening in China? Uh, it, like, how, how are we to actually know, you know, how is the government to actually know? Yes, they have intelligence briefings, but can you take me into that a little bit? Like, I have the slightest idea um, or, or confidence in, you know, how the federal government will make decisions about these kind of things and, you know, how it would actually be done the next time around. Yeah, so this is sorry, not my area of expertise whatsoever. Per so perfect. I know the technical aspects, I know the science, and I know a bit of the logistics and the healthcare economics. Um, the only thing I can say is that this is, uh, the this is the purpose of the WHO. Um, there is certainly legitimate criticism of China's response, particularly um, the Wuhan regional government that did, um, at least at least what we've seen so far, I don't know, um, was not mm -hmm. as forthcoming. Um, but certainly when, the, when we did see that uh, cases in China were rising so high that an entire region was, the entire province um, is locked down, then it's starting, because we're so connected now with mm -hmm. flights, um, mm -hmm. that at that point, that's why the WHO starts to recommend. And that's why a lot of governments uh, started to prepare back then. Um, and we see the varying responses, right? Not just in Asia, certainly South countries like South Korea um, prepared well. Um, Hong Kong, you know, did surprisingly well. Um, and, and Chris, you might have more information than I do, but given their proximity to China, everybody feared the worst for Hong Kong. Um, but they did well, well. And it's also worth noting, too, that, you know, Singapore seemed to have it handled, and now they've had a second mm. wave, which has jumped cases up over 1,000, um, causing yep. them to reinstitute lockdowns and more social distancing measures. So Exactly. And then outside of China, the I think the aggressiveness of early testing model, I don't think you can get to a better example than Germany uh, mm -hmm. compared to Spain or Italy. The German healthcare system is the model uh, outside of uh, say south korea mm -hmm. germany was running 125,000 tests i think per week if not more their case fatality rate is i believe 0.5 percent mm. versus what is our case fatality rate in the united states so i think for italy and for france it can be anywhere from five to ten percent wow. uh, the united states it's um yeah five maybe two to five percent mm -hmm. interesting now interestingly i did read that the rapidity or rapidness of the german response was because of a lack of a cdc equivalent because mm -hmm. in germany there are many different regions and they were basically given free reign they were said don't wait for a central authority because there isn't one just develop your tests as best as you see fit uh -huh. um, so some of the red tape was removed there but it's also because of the seriousness of the situation. Maybe there's a cultural aspect. Certainly, there are uh, very prominent diagnostic companies in Germany or near Germany. Um, mm -hmm. So there is some of that as well. And then I'll so touch on that. That's a like whole other German psychology or decentralization plus German psychology that led to that. I can't speak to the psychology portion. I think the the combination, I'm going to provide the classic uh, fen on the fence answer that I like to give a lot of times, which is a combination <laughs> of decentralization and centralization. 
<laughs> decentralization. <laughs> yeah, decentralization in the terms of not having barriers to develop a test and centralization in the form of a healthcare system, which is yeah. a whole nother topic, right? But certainly we see with the US and, um, you know, uh, to get a little bit to the patient journey, a lot of people's first worry in the United States, uh, again, I'm stepping into politics here, but it, when they want to go to the doctor is, can I afford it? And we've discussed it a bit, quite a bit, because we feature diagnostics quite prominently at Zoic. Um, but that's a bigger barrier sometimes than technology, or at least as equal as one. Uh, because a person doesn't often get tested because they don't they worry about the cost of doing so. Mm-hmm. And so they only get a diagnostic when it is too late. So that certainly played an effect with COVID-19 testing. Um, certainly at the federal level, the government did eventually declare that all testing would be free, which is great. But even at that point, even now, the question is somebody still has to pay for it. Mm. So if a person is insured, they still have to have their insurer. Who do they, who do they bill, right? Who, who do, how do they send the bill to the, to the company, to the person taking the, taking the sample? If a person is uninsured, a big discussion point was, what do you bill at? What's the rate? Who do you bill? Mm-hmm. Um, eventually decided that, uh, well, if you're uninsured, what we'll do is we will bill you and go through the Medicare system. So uh, in a way, there is kind of a Medicare for all system for COVID-19 mm. system, strangely enough. Um, so that, that, that's still a barrier, though. Money yeah. Grows. It's there. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a whole other issue. It's a whole other discussion and, point. Yeah. And don't forget, we also have a, a basic income now coming. A little form that's of UBI. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> again, totally out of my area of expertise. But, um, Andrew Yang will be so proud. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, it's an interesting discussion. Anyway. Yeah. But yeah. So but, yeah. So that's uh, um, again. So uh, where would you like to go? Should we go down the journey, well, or where would you? Like well, I was going to gonna say now. So in yes. Germany, they're doing a lot of testing. I mean, um, I'm not sure who has the highest percentage or per capita testing. Oh, yes. But I guess that would also remove some bias from the testing process if they're doing ah. some massive form of testing, right? Absolutely. So I'd like you to help me think. Uh, Eric, about um, the testing process as you started, um, what the samples actually mean and what the biases might be, uh, and then how does it make its journey through um, the lab corpse or quest diagnostics of the world or whatever, and then back to the result sure. that we uh, reported. Okay. Yeah, very good. I'll, I'll go through that then. Um, but for your first question, you are absolutely correct. You are kneeling another another point in that because when you have a, a situation, let's say not just Germany, but say South Korea, right, which is another model, and I believe that South Korea's per capita testing was even higher than than Germany, you are getting a true picture of the disease, not just for epidemiology, but just to control where and when to institute a quarantine, for example. Mm-hmm. With the lack of testing or testing availability in the U.S., we're not capturing perhaps where the hotspots are or we're not capturing where cases are truly occurring because there are probably cases now in the United States where a person does get sick, recovers, but because they're never in the system as having been tested, they don't enter the actual numbers. Mm-hmm. And so they might have had COVID-19 and might have recovered. Um, but it doesn't show up on, on, the, on the daily rolls that, that we're seeing, um, especially in high-density places, of course, like mm-hmm. New York or so. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, these days in those areas, in those hotspots, we really don't want people going out anyways to even mm-hmm. drive through places to get tested. Um, mm-hmm. So it is kind of a chicken and egg scenario now where because of the limitations of testing, even when somebody does want to get a test, even though it's free, because the tests are limited, only if a person matches a certain set of criteria, age, travel history, exposure, do they actually get tested. And then that means you have an incomplete picture. And then that circles back to, well, then you need to do more testing, but then that limits it again. So that kind of feeds back in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so, um, all right. So then shall we go through the the, the sample journey? Then? Yeah, the I think so, yeah. of Santiago. Is that... Christian, right. do you want us not want us to use Santiago? Do you want us to use your Santiago is wonderful. A Santiago swab. We'll take right. the SS swab through its journey. All right. So 
Okay, so we've covered a little bit of the issues already, some of the bottlenecks that do occur. One being, where do I go to test? Or sorry, before that, where you know, how do I how do I get paid for, right? Mm -hmm. Who's going to pay for it if I do have insurance? Even if I do have insurance, how do I get it authorized? Okay. Second issue, and so that's a bottleneck, right? A little bit better now, but if someone is uninsured, that still is a bottleneck. That's what is it? And again, just to be clear for the listeners, before that bottleneck, the bottleneck was even just making the test for a pathogen that didn't appear, but now that's in place. So before last last uh, point, I I assure you before going down a journey is before the biggest bottleneck was there was no technology that could detect it in the U.S. Okay, now there is now there are tests. Now that's no longer a bottleneck. All right, so now what are the bottlenecks? So first is insurance. Second is where do I go to test? Um, that could be an issue, right? Um, because do I go to urgent care? Do I go to my uh, healthcare providers facility like Kaiser, for example, um, very prominent here in California? Or do I go through some of these uh, drive-in testing facilities that um, some of the pharmacy benefit, uh, pharmacy providers are providing? Where do I go? Um, and for a while, there was an issue of even that infrastructure was not in place. Um, stepping a little bit into politics here, again, I don't, uh, I'm not an expert on this, but some of the delays may be because some of the testing was pushed towards Oscar Health, hey, you don't, which is a, a large if, healthcare provider. If Trump's taught us anything, you don't need to be an expert in politics to go ahead and comment on it or be a part of it. So, right. please, and, please and, ad-lib everywhere and so, you want to. Most of the testing or all the testing was tried to be pushed towards Oscar Health, and Oscar Health is is um, run by Jared Kushner's brother. So there was a, an attempt to push the testing there, through there, at least to where to find it. And such. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Nepotism knows no bounds. Right, right. Okay, so now that there are some sites, let's say you can find a place to go to. Um, next bottleneck, the logistics. Number one, logistics and issues of collecting a sample. Um, because there's still not as many uh, drive-through testing sites as available, um, even in Seattle, of course, um, Neil's home city, where a lot actually where the cases started, there's about a two-hour wait. You have to wait, sit in your car, wait for two hours. And people are being patient, but it's still a long line. There's still more uh, sites that need to be open. Um, okay, now that, but let's say we can we can open more. Next issue, gathering the sample. And this is can be a major issue because this alone can be enough of a bottleneck. Because in order to gather a sample, we're still talking about nucleic acid testing here, I need to gather either number one, venous blood, or two, a sample from the nasal passage. Now, gathering venous blood is probably the most accurate, but it might not be able to be done quickly and easily, especially at a drive-through. Uh, probably not, actually. I would guess that the FDA, CDC would discourage that to prevent the spillage of, of even just a, a drop of blood somewhere. Mm. Okay. Um, and But then even if you do want to do venous blood, it requires a nurse. And um, as we've all, as most of us have seen before, even before this crisis, nurses are the real, um, the real labor, honestly, uh, behind the healthcare system, especially in the U.S. They are so overworked, even when normally... And now you're asking more nurses to go out to these drive-through testing sites to draw blood or draw a sample rather than working at patient care. So there's a limited supply of nurses, honestly. And where do you want to put them? Where do you want to uh, allocate the resources? And okay, so let's say you have some nurses, but you don't want to draw venous blood, but you can draw a nasal swab. Um, there are some diagrams there out there um, that can be extremely uncomfortable for people to even look at because the nurse has to shove the swab literally all the way up your nose, um, almost too close to your... Yeah, I heard it To the hurt, point where... Right? Like, literally yes, like it should Exactly. Hurt. If you had a sample taken and it did not hurt, it was not done a properly. A friend of ours in Common's wife got a test recently, and um, the person um, that they know who knows how to administer tests asked uh, the wife, did, did it hurt? And... Um, she said no, and he said, "Well, whatever the answer is, it's a it's a false uh, negative." That's right. So, oh, we're, of course, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, we're, we're as we're going through this journey, we are highlighting bottlenecks, but also, as Chris mentioned, areas where there can be a false negative or a false positive. 
And this is a source of a false negative where this just you just don't swab enough because it needs to go deep enough, probably because it dilutes a bit more as it proceeds uh, more to the forefront of the nasal passage. Um, the, the throat is probably even worse. Um, and why mm -hmm. does that happen? Well, even the best nurse, best trained nurse, they're sitting out there, you know, sitting at a drive-thru. There's a long line. There's pressure of time. Everybody's nasal passage is probably different. It's shaped differently. The depth is different. It's not an exact science. Mm -hmm. And it's, is it an area of innovation? Absolutely. Just like blood collection. But the, uh, the, uh, the, the technologies or the, uh, the investment dollars don't usually go to these type of uh, technologies because in normal times, it's a commodity. Um, a Q-tip works well enough in many cases, but just not now. So that's just mm -hmm. that alone can be the source of a bottleneck um, and also a source of false negatives. Mm -hmm. Can they also swab the throat? They, all, they can swab the throat, but they need to go very deep as well. Again, um, yeah. And so almost to the point where you need to put your hand in somebody's mouth, which again is, um, I mean, not your whole hand, but again, <laughs> um, which, which, goes, which goes to the next point, right? Which goes to the next point is that the nurse needs to be in full PPE, obviously, right? Yeah. yeah. Just from gathering samples. Face shield, yeah. mask, goggles, uh, gown, gloves, and they, they need to change after every person. Right. They can't transmit it to the next. Uh... Exactly. That's a major disaster. So PPE is in, is in critically short supply, as we've all seen, even in emergency rooms. So getting PPE out to somebody standing out there for sample collection is difficult, to say the least. As an aside, um, you know, we've even asked at Zoic, of course, well, what about home collection? The ability to collect a sample at home. Um, there are some technologies that allow you to do that. There are some companies even that have offered at-home testing. But I think the day of or the day after the companies announced it, the FDA put a stop to it because there's a lack of control, right? Mm -hmm. It requires this amount of training, a person swabbing themselves. There's no guarantee they'll do it correctly. There's a massive issue of if they send a sample in the mail and it is positive, um, there's a lack of control possibly about it. And there's traceability, right? You want to make sure that all the tests as they are, even bottlenecked as they are, go through the medical record system. So you can track it. And so the doctors know who has it and who doesn't and can follow up appropriately, um, which we'll get to in a little bit. Um, so that's sample collection. Um, any questions on that before I go to the next step? Not for me. No, not for me either. But I guess if you did at-home testing, you would have to um, reduce the false uh, negatives by blood taking blood samples, right? I mean, the swabbing does seem too, too difficult. Certainly. Yeah. And um, at the moment, there do not exist any devices, not even the lab, that can reliably detect the small quantities of DNA or RNA um, required by this test and others um, that, that only can do so with a few drops of blood. Yeah. Right? Nothing exists now, um, technology-wise, uh, the ideal technology would be one to uh, to be able to uh, do so from a few drops of blood, but um, besides some scams like Theranos, um, right. there right. does not exist some yet. But there should be soon in, in the near future, just unfortunately not right now. Yeah, so and anything more than a, a finger prick, you'd need a phlebotomist. Right? Exactly, <laughs> so yes. And that's a whole other ballgame, right? Because phlebotomists in different states yeah. are trained well or licensed and in others, it's just a fee. So you really get into some issues with even trying to deploy all the phlebotomists that could go out to the field. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Thanks, Eric. All right. Great. And so, so what happens to the swab now that we've collected the sample? All right. So the journey of the swab. So now it's transferred from the person to the swab. Santiago goes back home. Uh, now the swab is uh, packaged up. Um, and in a self-contained um, capsule and then sent off to the lab. Um, number one, uh, logistics. Again, this is not my area of expertise, but I would imagine that the logistics system right now is being strained already with shipment of medical uh, equipment. Samples do have priority, um, but many, there are still plenty of blood samples being sent around, even as part of normal day-to-day -day business. People that are on dialysis, people that are on at-home treatment, people that are in the hospital, get their samples sent out every day, and those get sent out to the big companies, the LabCorp and the Quest that Chris mentioned, 
that have a um, pretty dominant position as the ones that control the, the blood highway. Um, that actually sounds darker than I thought it would sound, but it's, um, it, it, that's one of, the, one of our startup companies, portfolio companies describe it. So these big companies, they have the large central facilities that can process these blood samples. All right, so now I'm going to get into a bit of the science, which is near and dear to my heart, and which is what I did my PhD in. So nucleic acid testing. How do I, from a sample of blood or from a sample of saliva or mucus, find the RNA that is unique to the virus? So what is done now, the gold standard, is a, a chemical reaction called PCR, a polymerase chain reaction. It's specifically RT-PCR, real-time PCR, but I'll say PCR just to save those extra few milliseconds of saying it. All right, so PCR is a chemical reaction where it requires a trained person. It requires equipment that costs at least a few you know, tens of thousands of dollars, but at these large labs, they're typically around half a million to a million because they can process lots of samples. And you basically take your sample, you purify it first. That purification process requires about a dozen steps, uh, and uh, at least an hour, and it requires a trained person because you're handling and mixing and filtering out this equipment, this, uh, this liquid uh, that starts as a patient sample. It needs to go through those dozen steps. You need specialized equipment and materials for that. And why do you need a trained person? Because you're dealing with very small volumes. Typically, a sample can be 50 microliters, for example, 50 times 10 to the minus 6 liters. And only the most accurate of pipettes, these little um, instruments, can do so. Uh, if you're off by a few microliters, that can throw off your sample, not just in the purification in the next step. Okay, so now that I've purified the sample, and then the purpose of the purification is take out all the stuff that can mess up your signal, um, or or extraneous stuff like cells, you know, red blood cells, white blood cells, all the all the stuff that's filtering around that's not DNA or RNA. All right, so now that I've purified the sample, I now have to go through PCR. And PCR is basically a chemical reaction where you literally cook the sample at varying temperatures with a mixture of enzymes, proprietary materials like those primers we mentioned at the very beginning. And you need to cycle the temperature precisely and quickly. Um, you need to go, for example, from room temperature up to 95 degrees Celsius, back down to room temperature, back up to 32, back up to 95, back down. Many different cycles, because that's how the enzymes work. Yeah. Uh, and that's also how the DNA um, is, is changed from single-stranded to double-stranded. Um, there are plenty of videos and diagrams uh, on the web to, to show you what is being done. And the temperature needs to be very accurate. If you're off by a few degrees, it can cause a false positive um, or just kill the enzymes. That, that's a false negative. And you need to do it very quickly. So... Why do I say that? Well, number one, it's a complex process that takes several hours, and it requires instruments of certain degree of complexity. So you need a machine that, uh, if any of our listeners are of engineering background, they can appreciate. You need Peltier cooling, for example. You need a thermocouple. In other words, you need a lot of stuff, and that's why it costs so much. That's why, as of now, these machines have not made the transition to a cheap at-home device, because they're so complex still. And so at the end of the day, these machines require uh, several hours to work, um, you know, six hours or so, at least just for the process itself, it requires a trained person. And they're so expensive that they really only live at a, in these LabCorp or Quest Labs or at a big hospital's central lab. Um, you, might, you might see it uh, so there. And so these machines are used routinely, right, for DNA or RNA testing. And so what companies have done, like Abbott and Roche, is that they have designed their tests to use these machines, right? Because that makes sense. You use the existing infrastructure so that you just don't have to, I mean, at least we're not necessarily in a scenario where we have to come up with a brand new diagnostic machine with technology that hasn't been tried before just to detect this thing. So it can, it can fit into the existing infrastructure and use the existing facilities. But the bottleneck is that there's, these are limited, as you can imagine. There's not that many around. Um, these machines can take up an entire room um, we saw some yeah. at a blood bank in Seattle. Neil saw, Neil saw one. Very cool, very cool machine. It uses robotics. It can, it can handle. And the reason why when Roche uh, announced that their tests could work on the Cobos Amplicore, which is a big machine that right. they use, is because that can... Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 
it can process hundreds of people's samples at a time. It says four thousand over four thousand one hundred in a yep. twenty-four hour period. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. So uh, ultimately, yes, it takes several hours, but because it's so it's such, I mean, this PCR process has been around for decades. Um, it's a very streamlined process. So then, why is the bottleneck? Well, there's not that many of these machines around. Um, it requires a trained person to purify the sample first. So that's another bottleneck. There's not that many around. There have been uh, calls to action, of course, that we see for any retired doctor or nurse in, in hotspots like New York. There's been a similar call to graduate students in, that are in molecular biology at University of Washington, for example, UC Irvine. Any free labor. And, and, I, and I say that in both means of the term because a graduate student, having been one, is, all, is pretty much free labor or very cheap. But they're willing to do so because this is science, saying drop your lab, drop your research, just come in and run these tests um, mm -hmm. because it's not easy to do so. Uh, it requires trained personnel. So machines are limited. Reses are limited. Another bottleneck, the reagents. So these chemical reactions require specialized reagents. When I say reagents, things like buffers, things like um, the, the solution that you're running in. So the, the, so this thing is stable at 95 degrees Celsius or so, it, so on and so forth. Uh, enzymes, right? The reason why this process runs is so it, they're, they're actually made from enzymes that are either genetically engineered or taken from thermophilic bacteria, bacteria that live near geothermal vents at the bottom of the ocean. Now, nowadays, they're not. We don't have to actually go down there and scrape it up, but we still only can make so much at a time. And those reagents, because of our current global logistics systems, are mostly made in China or Europe. In fact, the, um, the purification kits are mostly made, I think, in two factories in Europe, one of which is in Spain. Um, that was an issue of concern when there was a, when there was a Europe travel ban, uh, as you, well, if you remember, it seems like years ago, but you know, when that was announced about a month ago, initially mm -hmm. that travel ban was for all commercial activity, right? I think that was the case, right, Chris? Yeah, um, that's correct. It was. And then it was quickly changed because it was identified yeah. as a hotspot. Yeah. Got it. Yeah, exactly. And it was quickly identified that this one set of um, you know purification reagents are important enough to require bypassing it. So then they, they dropped that. I mean, there are probably other reasons as well. Um, so that's limited as well. And of course, I mean, other than that, it was not well thought out from the beginning and they had to reverse course. Yes. That too. Yeah. That, that, <laughs> that, that, um, yeah. Like that never. That, yeah. That has happened a few times, of course. Um, so. So those are the bottlenecks, uh, the materials, the, the resources, the machines. The, mach the, the analogy I use, even though it might not be a perfect one, right now the state of the art of DNA testing, the machines are like the age of mainframes, right? Large, room size, even building size machines. We have not gotten to the point yet, although certainly that's what we look for at Zoic, we've not to the point of the microprocessor equivalent of DNA testing, where it can be held in your hand and it costs only a few Hey, dollars. we've seen some stuff that we can't um, talk maybe. about. That's right. <laughs> That's right. So hopefully, hopefully in the near future, uh, and I'll expound on it a little bit, in the near future, when we have a handheld equivalent in every one of our homes, just like a smartphone now is in every one of our homes, if the next pandemic happens when this is widespread, all that we need to do is for that manufacturer to say, hey, download this module. We'll send you a cartridge. Now everybody can just test themselves at home. Which is phenomenal, mm -hmm. right? And totally changes the world. Which bypasses yeah. this entire logistics system. Right, exactly. And yeah. you have the electronic benefits of the data being all collected at, at one source. So on and so and forth. And absolutely. Absolutely. Real time by mm -hmm. epidemiologists that can track it as well. And I suppose um, if they wanted to, they so, could also uh, give anyway, that information to the that. CDC or whatever other authority, whatever private company is mm -hmm. developing that. Which would just be good in general. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. And if you can um, track even even some of the symptoms, let's say the antibodies, you might be able to um, predict when it's flaring up rather than waiting for reporting. Because uh, by the time you see enough, by the time the doctors and nurses are the ones to see it in the healthcare system, um, it's already spread much more than that. Um, so, anyways, that's that's the testing portion. That's PCR. Um, uh, as this, as an aside, the the Abbott test that came out is um, a, a five minute test, so much faster. Doesn't require several hours. That is an isothermal DNA amplification. Uh, that is at one temperature. That's what I did my t uh, my my PhD thesis in. Um, again, the engineers can can already tell 
how that can simplify the machine. So that is great. But the issue is that it's still a new piece of technology. And so that is not as widespread as the Roche machines or such. And it still requires a trained person to use. It still requires that purification step uh, before you push the button on the Abbott machine. Uh, and that still requires a, and, and, uh, a trained person and you still require reagents. So, um, and it's still a, a hub and spokes model. So we still have to send it to a central processing facility and then yep. await exactly. the information to come back out. Right. Exactly. Exactly. The, the 23andMe's, even the companies that were shut down recently that were offering at-home tests, it's, it's the equivalent of Netflix without the internet now still. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. It's a good analogy. Yeah. You still have to order it and they have still have to send you. You're ordering something, but they still have to send it to the sample. It still gets... Um, Which is interesting you know, as, as a model uh, too, because the, I think some of yeah. the things we're seeing are Netflix without the internet, right? Just Netflix was designed knowing that high streaming <laughs> movies were going to win the world someday. Exactly. They even, even their name right from the very beginning kind of saw that, um, saw that rise. So, um, so yeah. Um, so those are the bottlenecks at the testing site. A lot of it has to do with technology, but even now it's, it's limited in resources and, um, you can buy more machines or make more machines, I suppose, but these are complex machines that are, um, that take time to build and, Certify. The main thing about medical um, aspects is that everything needs to be certified and qualified, um, and that that takes the longest. Um, so, so yeah. So now, Eric, the the Abbott Labs has the new five minute uh, mm -hmm. diagnostic test, mm -hmm. but still, um, what's the range of time it takes for Santiago Swab to give mm -hmm. us a result and for him to learn whether he was uh, positive or negative? Absolutely. So the lab time itself, so even with the Abbott machine, is you know, once your sample gets into the lab, goes through the queue, goes through that, when it's in a technician's hand or a lab person's hand, then it will only take a few hours to process. But the bottlenecks are actually all the time beforehand and afterwards. We've heard anecdotally and we've also seen that the actual time it takes for a person to actually get their sample result right now can be a week, if not more, mm. can be 10 days. Why is that? Well, it's all the time required to go find a testing site, sample sending out. And a part of it is the bottleneck at the technology side or well, the lab side, because, because they have such a backlog, it takes several days for your test to actually make it to the top of the list. And they're trying to work through that backlog. And not only is the backlog an issue for telling people whether they're positive or not, but the samples themselves degrade. Uh, blood sample, even even a blood sample is not not uh, not valid after only a few days. Um, I don't remember on the saliva, but it's it's not too different. Mm -hmm. um, is there some way they store the samples to help preserve their integrity? Yes, there are buffers and reagents and stuff, but a raw sample uh, it's mainly temperature and humidity. So if you control it, that helps. Um, but certainly, you can't wait a week. Um, right, right. So there isn't a week. They're, they're typically not, but there's a back end and a, and a and a, and, a, and a front end of, of that waiting time. And that's another bottleneck, which is reporting. So let's say the lab sends out a sample. Um, I think many of us would be surprised, maybe not. Uh, but even through personal experience, a lot of the lab results are still being printed on paper. Um, the electronic systems of different caregivers, for example, between Fresenius and Kaiser, for example, as one example, previous, or one recent personal example, are not compatible. So mm -hmm. in order for a Kaiser doctor to read out what is uh, the Fresenius, they need to interface with a different system. Mm. And for the patient that's going, that is a Kaiser patient, but <coughs> is going to a Fresenius facility, they need to get a paper readout. So they need to wait, right? Um, or wait until they get to a person. To tell them Very interesting, right? All the bottlenecks and efficiency. What, what, what is, uh, I read this stat recently. What, what, what is healthcare expected to be of GDP in 2020? Like, is it going to be 30% or 25% now? I guess we're printing so much money. What was GDP, healthcare of the GDP spend last year, Chris? 25%? Um, that's a great question. Yeah. No, I don't know. We'll make we'll ask Tanner to look this up for us and add it to the show notes. 
Uh-huh. Yeah, the the last numbers I saw were around seventeen percent. I'm imagining it's not uh, oh, too much different. Not. Probably not. But you know, you can see where the inefficiencies are trapped, right? When even when when trying to get that information. That that's super helpful, mm-hmm. Eric, to to yeah. kind of hear all of the issues and why we're not getting the tests. Yeah. So um, I can also go briefly into the antibody testing. Yes, right, please, which please is share. The second category. So. Um, as we talked about at the beginning, the two categories are nucleic acid and antibody testing. Nucleic acid tells you, do I have the active virus in me? Um, and it can detect it at pretty low levels too. So even if somebody isn't sick, um, especially with this virus, actually, um, it can tell. The antibodies, so as a basic overview, this may be too basic for for many, but at a basic level, if if we're infected by a virus, not just COVID, you know, not just COVID-2, but any virus, our body mounts a defense by producing antibodies, proteins that can mark a virus and either mark it for the immune system or actually, you know, help actively kill it. Um, and so the idea of a vaccine is you stimulate the body to produce the antibody without actually infecting you so that if the virus does appear, your body already has the defenses against it. So the second category of tests is an antibody test looking for these antibodies. And it doesn't, now the, the negatives are it doesn't tell you if you, it, it can't tell you if you actively have a virus in you or not. It can only tell you if you have the antibodies, which means if you're not sick, you have been exposed to COVID 2 before. So is that not as useful as the nucleic acid test? Probably. But is it still useful? Yes. And why is that? Well, it can tell if, say, so number one, it can tell you if you have some antibodies. Now, there's no conclusive evidence yet that just because somebody has antibodies they're immune to this virus we don't know that yet but in most cases that is the case so in an emergency situation a healthcare worker that has been quarantined um, because they suspected that they were sick but they didn't get sick or maybe they got sick and got recovered are they able to return back to work in an emergency situation like in new york or other hotspots, maybe that's enough especially if there's a limited amount of nucleic acid tests Another example is, let's say I'm a private citizen and I kind of got sick um, over the winter. I don't know whether it was or not. I had kind of the same symptoms. Um, I I can't get a nucleic acid test because of all these bottlenecks, but I can't get an antibody test. Um, I get it. Oh, I was exposed. Well, I should probably do the responsible thing and tell everybody that I had contact with over the last few weeks. and make sure they, they eat they either social distance or take all the precautions or maybe even get tested themselves. Right? That's where the backtracking is difficult to do, but it's kind of necessary. Right? Was I did I go visit was I in was I in lockdown, but I saw a neighbor, I saw a friend for coffee. <laughs> I just I just want to let you know that that's like that. not really the definition of lockdown, just in case you're not clear. <laughs> right, that's right. what I'm saying. Because in spite of the lockdown, right, right. someone's still not stuck out and doing that. Yeah, right. Which still, which is happening now. Um, or um, I came back, I got sick, and um, I was still around my family. Well, maybe they should get tested too. And now, at the very well, least, yeah. If you're a healthcare worker, I mean, you're right. There's not been any evidence yet that uh, the antibodies give you, uh, or how much protection they give you from actually. Right, a recurrence of COVID, but it seems like it could embolden or create some sense of peace among some healthcare workers, right? People absolutely, absolutely. People on the front with resources as limited as they are, uh, even EMTs, police officers, firefighters—they mm-hmm. are—they are constantly being exposed. Um, and you know, we're having to—you know—we. I hate saying this phrase, but a lot of people are, hate this phrase and keep saying it. But it's better than not having a test. Better than mm-hmm. nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So it is useful for some for some cases. It is also useful for tracking as well from an epidemiological sense. You know, how is it spread? Who has spread it? Um, this is why we know that it can be spread when a person is asymptomatic. This is why we know it can spread by just you know um, other means that we thought were not possible. Um, and we also can trace back to 
you know, literally patient zero or patient whatever um, in various countries. So um, just briefly, the bottlenecks are quite similar still, though, right? Still need to get a, a blood sample. Um, and I believe with antibodies, I need to, I think you only need, you only do a blood test. Uh, so that's another issue. Um, maybe a saliva test? I don't know. Um, I, I forgot. But anyways, even regardless, even if it isn't a blood test, they still have those bottlenecks that we talked about. Still need to send to a lab. The process to test for proteins, which antibodies are, um, is a is a process called ELISA, E-L-I-S-A. Um, and it, again, takes several hours. Uh, but the technology, the devices that it need to do so aren't as complex, aren't as you know, difficult. Um, you can even make devices that can really shrink down the time. And that's why we see some tests that are those five minutes or so. Um, I would, you know, reading headlines is always, you need caution. So um, when a, you know, media source reports, hey, there's a new five minute or a 10 minute COVID-19 test, the majority of the time, those are antibody tests. The only one that it, that is the exception is the Abbott PCR, or isothermal amplification, sorry. So when you see that headline, oh, hey, here's a quick test. Most of the time, that's an antibody test, which is good, like I'm saying, but it's not the same as a nucleic acid test. Um, but again, ELISA requires a trained person, even on these machines, because you still need to handle the sample well, and you still have the bottlenecks on the reporting back. Yeah. But at least it uses different resources. It doesn't use the same machines as nucleic acid testing. Um, mm -hmm. You can still you can even do ELISA manually without actually an instrument. You might need it on the reading part. Um, but uh, you, there's a way to do it by hand uh, as well, which is most common in research labs. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, that can be done and at least offload some of the resources and at least provide useful information to some people. Well, that's great. Um, yeah, thank you, Eric. And Absolutely. I, I guess those tests not only are um, easier to process, but also easier to develop? The antibody yes. Yeah. Yes, antibody tests are, um, are easier to develop. But um, curiously enough, there were a delay in actually making them. Number one, the antibodies take up actually a little bit longer to discover, as you can imagine, right? Because you can isolate a virus in a person that has this new pathogen and then mm -hmm. sequence the RNA, but it actually takes a little bit longer to isolate the antibodies because they mm -hmm. can actually, you know, they can be, you're, it's in a mix of a whole bunch of, it, it's, it just takes, takes longer. And I believe initially the FDA concentrated most of its resources on approving nucleic acid tests. Uh, because those are probably the most, um, uh, they, they can actually tell you if you have an active infection or not. Um, could some of the resources been spent better spent on approving or developing antibody tests in the past? Maybe. It is 2020 hindsight and, and resources were limited. Um, but now you're starting to see some antibody tests um, uh, that, are, that are being developed. Actually, some of them actually don't, don't require a blood sample. So that's good too. But yeah. At least we're starting to see some of that um, to fill in some of the So, gaps. you know, join us in the predictions game here a little bit, Eric. A question um, Chris and I uh, answered with John Milne, uh, who you know really well, uh, the other day was, do you think we're going to see another pandemic in our lifetimes? So, um, so we will see COVID-19 Mark II in the winter. Okay. Right? So I I'm just going to say it. I hate to answer your answer with like in in a few more months, but that's going to be that's going to be we're going to see it right the second wave. So Neil, you have to live a few more months. <laughs> okay, Let, yeah. let's say you know. You've got, aside you've from got COVID nineteen, do you think we're going to see another um, pandemic? Hmm. So um, so we so Neil, you and I frequently talk to infectious disease experts, vaccine experts, those that are much more well versed on the infectious disease and virus side than, than I am. And, um, so actually, right. Like people like Steve Reed, right. That was on this podcast, um, recently. Mm -hmm. And, um, I believe Steve, correct me if I'm wrong, but certainly others certainly do say that because we're seeing such a rise in population, uh, climate change, right. Um, migration because of that, um, we're going to see the rise of pandemics and not just pandemics, but this type of, um, you know, uh, highly modified, highly adjusted or adapted, certainly, if not viruses, like RNA-based infectious diseases. So um, the pandemics might be, if not COVID-19, might be, say, a new form of, say, dengue, 
right? That's actually pretty scary. Yellow fever. Um, yeah, absolutely. That um, that can spread, and as we've seen, um, and and Steve has highlighted that our vaccine production and, and research and development in has a major, been major, major way. Yeah. Right, and we see it ourselves in the influenza or the, the yearly flu vaccine. That again, Steve is uh, miles or millions of miles or light years more of an expert than I am. But I reiterate mm -hmm. that because hopefully now. We will see more uh, investment or more resources being directed, and we're certainly, uh, all three of us here, are part of that effort to help um, find those technologies, get them to a point, because those platforms are much more adaptable to a new pathogen. They are they're able to come up with a, va a vaccine faster. They still have to go through the same regulatory process, but they can adapt. And same thing on the diagnostic side. Um, so we're so not trying to... Platforms. Yeah, not trying to build vaccines on an egg farm. <laughs> right, <laughs> like the flu vaccine. Right, you can all see the pictures of the flu vaccine being incubated in eggs, um, the same way as it has been for decades. Mm -hmm. um, and all right, so, yeah. so let's end with exactly. a few more predictions because Chris loves them so much and is so great at them. Um, <laughs> that last part is a lie. Um, do you think... This is just an easy Especially yes or no for everybody. Um, do you think that in the next 24 months that 50% of the United States would have taken a test for the antibody test for COVID-19? I'm going to say no. Uh, what was the time period again? Sorry. Um, I, I think I said the next 12 months, but we can, we can make it 24 if you like. Oh, you mean in the next 12 to 24 months, will 50% of people no, want, want to take an will antibody take test? Is that what in the United States. Oh, will they? I'm going to say no. I'd say in the next 24 months, yes. Okay. Chris? I'll say yes. 150 million people in 24 months. It, um, yeah, so I'm going to say, so I test, might agree with you guys I at 24. That... I think I originally started with 12 months. At 12 months... My answer is no. At 24 months, my answer, no. uh, I'm probably succumbing to peer pressure here, but yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I would agree with that. I like you, Neil, but um, okay. I, I, you know, in, in terms of the next major pandemic, um, something on the scale of COVID-19, um, do you think it's uh, over under 10 years or not applicable if you're betting against it? I'm going to say um, under 10 years, we're going to see another pandemic. How's that for a scary prediction? And um... Chris? Um, I, I'm, I'm up in the batter's box. I say, um, no, not in 10 years. But I do think uh, we'll have epidemics. We've had, you yeah. know, the bird yeah. flu, H1N1, we've had SARS and those have been pretty recent, actually. And so I think we'll have another uh, epidemic, Eric? but not a pandemic. Yeah, I think <laughs> I think probably at 10 years or so, um, 10 to 15 another years it will be. Um, mm -hmm. But I actually, I actually am confident that um, because of the lessons we'll be learned, for it, yeah. you know, um, human nature is is we, we, we adapt, we, we react very quickly, but we don't preempt um, very quickly. So we'll learn mm -hmm. from this and we'll adapt. But we tend not to learn until uh, it actually happens. Interesting. Mm -hmm. um, do you think, uh, um, well, let, me just, let me change it completely. Uh, Eric, are there any other predictions you'd like to make or like us to, to bet on with you? <laughs> I do think that I do think still think optimistically. I think that because of this, more technologies will be made available for sure that are in line uh, with other desires that will make this um, that will give people more tools. Um, but uh, I think this really highlights um, you know inefficiencies in our not just technology but our healthcare system, um, you know government oversight or, or when it's needed. Um, and those those will be addressed. I, I am confident of that. But uh, 
a key part of that is is the technology piece. Um, so, they, so you, do, do you think the obviously the total number of grants are going up for uh, COVID nineteen related, you know, whether it's vaccine or therapeutic or diagnostic? Do you think in general life sciences will see a resurgence um, uh, of grants come back to it, not not just from private foundations or wealthy individuals, which was where it seems to have picked up. But do you think the government is going to, you know, uh, raise the number of grants by, say, 30% over the next couple of years? Yes, I think so. And um, for, you know, for, for various uh, positives and negatives, what I will see, we actually have seen this before the pandemic, but I think overall on the positive, we will see just as many dollars being offered from countries outside the U.S., especially in Asia, um, and they will. They will, we will see as just as much funding and acquisition activities on the pharmaceutical and diagnostic side uh, from those countries, from companies in those countries, uh, where traditionally that was a U.S. pharma, or maybe U.S. and European pharmaceutical. Uh, uh, Chris, activity. is there any predictions you'd like to make to end the podcast related to this subject area? you could not be so confident about, but make anyway? Yeah, there'll be not just one, but two more rounds two of stimulus. Two more rounds of stimulus. Can we add and dollars to next... that? Yeah. Um, yeah. Two rounds of stimulus over what? Over what dollar amount and over what time? Like, i thinking more than $500 Because they... I think at least uh, Total? two more trillion. Mm-hmm. At least, yeah. I think we'll get to five or six trillion in this whole package. Well, we're already roughly it, three and I, a half. Okay, so we're at three and a half. You think we'll get to five or six? Um, and uh -huh. you think that's in calendar year of 2020 or before the end of 2021? I think okay. the next 12 so months. So from, we'll call it, we're just going to call it, it's April 6th today, but we're going to call it April 15th just because it's easy to track by tax day. Yeah. Um, I don't want to disagree with that one just because we have, we have our Danny Barker bet going with these for the year. So <laughs> I'm not right. going to go against you on this one. So this one's a neutral. I, I, yeah. um, I actually, so what percentage of GDP, total GDP is that again? GDP is what? 19? Oh, GDP is 22, 23 now, I guess ish. Yeah. A trillion. So we'll have a quarter of GDP going to uh, stimulus. I don't know what we're stimulating. Bailouts. We don't want the banks <laughs> to fail, right? <laughs> Isn't that why you elected your local congressman? To make sure your local bank did, or your, your big national bank didn't fail, Chris? Well, not, yeah, that's not why. Uh, most of the banks are uh, have heavy ownership among the Senate. The... Um, $150 billion that went to the hospitals, though, I hope the future stimulus gives more to the healthcare uh, component of the economy, even though it is close to 178 to 18%. Right. Cool. Okay. So that, that's actually really interesting. I, I, I agree with that. I, I've been thinking about it for a while, and I, I actually wonder a little bit, and, and may, maybe you can give me odds on this, right? So this one's harder, and we can't bet on it, but... Um, what are the odds do you think we reach ten trillion in stimulus? Do you think like above ten percent? Like, because that's yeah, probably um, yeah, above ten percent, less than uh, less than a fifth, that, twenty percent. That, that, that's crazy that we could even talk about Change. that as an idea, huh? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. Once you get to climb up to six trillion, well, I don't know what what the barriers are, and, and going for more, um, what it'll look. Like. Yeah, it might be some form of UBI again, some extended uh, payments to people who've lost their jobs. Uh, recovery is most likely not going to be V shaped, but sort of a long and gradual return to work and recovery is the best I can and remind imagine. Me, it. Remind me about but the amount of. Imagination. Sorry to cut you off on that. What remind me again of how much the the England you said had in debt? You know, the largest debt of a kind of modern country that was able to recover from it. 
Uh, yeah, well, kind of modern. This was after the Napoleonic Wars, and they clocked in at over 425, uh, some would estimate 450% debt to GDP, um, and without defaulting on the debt, uh, though they did create some inflation, uh, paid for the debt with cheaper pounds. Uh, Wait, so what percentage are we at today, and what so, percentage will we be at if we get to $10 trillion in stimulus? We're about 120, 223% with the new stimulus. Uh, it hasn't been funded yet, so we'll see. It's 110% debt to GDP um, without adding in entitlements programs like Medicare funding and some other things. So it's it's um, it's up there. Any, any amount of debt to GDP that's higher than 100%, this is a rough uh, back-of-the-envelope calculation, but uh, has been... Um, estimated to really uh, decrease economic activity. And you can see as the debt levels have grown, um, even the recoveries in the GDP uh, measure of economic activity have been lower and lower. So we've had um, um, smaller recoveries um, leading to the next recession ever since the Greenspan era at the Fed. No. And this will lead to even more interesting conversation with um, our uh, armchair economist and even more correct indicator of, of Vivian Ming on our next podcast. So we hope you'll join us, join us for Vivian Ming's podcast. One of the mm-hmm. top data, one It'll of the top data scientists in the world, computational neuroscientist by training. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, it's been great for all of you to, to join us. And Eric, thank you very much for all your insight and knowledge. And um, I guess that PhD certainly wasn't wasted as far as I'm concerned. I'm <laughs> glad you, you have it. <laughs> thanks. I'm glad to get back to it. Yes, thanks. Right. Yes, thanks, Neil. Thanks, Chris. The big time stuff that I wish I had. The big time stuff that I make you mad. The big time stuff. I like the big time stuff. I like the big time stuff. That I never had